Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guests today are Kristen Kirkpatrick and Dr. Ibrahim Pinone, and they have gotten together and written a book called Regenerative Health that is out now. And they decided to write this book because what they talk about is that fatty liver disease is a silent epidemic. Most people, a lot of people actually don't know that they even have it. They'll sort of say, oh, I feel extra tired. Or people think it's for someone who's very overweight or has diabetes, and it is not the case. And one in four people will end up with fatty liver disease. And the good news is, is they break it all down for you, signs that maybe you have it, and what you can do to turn back any damage that you've done to your liver. And one of the things that Dr. Ibrahim really stuck with me is that the thing he loves about studying the liver and working with the liver is how regenerative it is. So they say, yes, sure, we've got this issue. And guess what? There's so many solutions to it. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Gabby Ree Show. It's my favorite thing to interview two people at once far away, okay? <laughs> we're, we're good at going with the flow. We are good, so. <laughs> Let, let's start there. So your new book will be out, uh, Regenerative Health and just maybe give us the background on how the two of you decided to take this project on together. Yeah, sure. So I'll, um, I, I can answer that. We actually collaborated with our first book, Skinny Liver. Uh, we were both working at Cleveland Clinic at the time, and I really wanted to focus on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I had so many patients and they, they had no guide. They had no, nothing to direct them of what to do. And I thought, I want to write the guide, but I realized I couldn't do it without a world-class hepatologist. So uh, I met Dr. Hananay. I was able to shadow him for some time, which was fascinating to me. And that's how we connected. No, yeah. Thank you very much uh, for having us. It's really an honor uh, to be with you today. And, um, and, and yeah, I echo what Kristen said. It's been a wonderful journey to work with Kristen and, um, we chose specifically fatty liver because it's a disease that has no medicine. Uh, it's like a wise man once said, let the food be your medicine. That's a perfect example of fatty liver disease. I have seen in having all these conversations, a, a movement of people like yourself and like Kristen, who one would say are traditionally trained, but then are sort of moving in this other direction and trying to bridge the two worlds of, hey, lifestyle and health and medicine. But I'm always more curious with someone like you who is well-trained and, you know, this is what you do, the willingness, because in a way it's, it's not that it's a risk, but you have to be a bit of a pioneer to go, wait a second, uh, let's get people to, you know, have different lifestyle practices. So what about you and your past or your background kind of gave you that freedom to even have this conversation? Uh, I've always believed uh, in, uh, uh, you know, really, once again, let the food be your medicine. Uh, you know, if we can fix it uh, with uh, lifestyle changes, uh, um, wouldn't be way better than uh, being on a medicine the rest of your life, uh, you know, considering potential uh, side effect. 
uh, not to mention, um, you know, lifestyle uh, will, uh, if you will, kill two birds with one stone or affect like, you know, uh, several components of metabolic syndrome. Uh, you know, when we, um, nothing against medicine, but, you know, uh, finding a medicine to treat fatty liver uh, would be fine, but wouldn't it be much better if I, uh, uh, if I focus on lifestyle and affects uh, the uh, all components of metabolic syndrome, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, overweight, and as a result of that, fatty liver. I think, you know, that would be uh, big pictures or a, or a good investment for the future. I want to get into uh, the different types of uh, metabolic profiles, but we've but before we do that, I um, I always ask a lot of my guests because you guys see people all the time, and I know that we we are actually equipped with the information. We have it right. We know we need to get to bed. We know we probably shouldn't have sugary drinks. There's a lot of things we know, and I'm curious individually. And Kristen, I'll start with you. What is it that is stopping us? And and you know, you talk a lot about kind of emotional and mental health in the book conversely with, you know, metabolic health and microbiome and your gut health. But I just wonder just from kind of a human part, what each of you is seeing that you really think are some of the most common reasons that it's so hard for the general population to get there. Yeah, it's really hard. I, I've seen that really throughout the course of, of two decades of seeing patients. And I think one of the things that people lose when they're trying to change behavior related to food is everything outside of food. So you specifically mentioned sleep as one aspect. I also look at social circle, environments, um, your childhood. I think sometimes we, we minimize just how much our childhood really kind of gives us a perspective of how we eat as an adult and how hard it is to change that. Um, so we, we focus on food, but then we're not focusing on anything else. So I think that's one of the real hard things about behavior change. I also think sometimes we try to be less than human. So I, I always tell my patients, when you come to see me, I want to know what your non-negotiable is. And everyone's got one. It's typically bacon, right? Or something like that. But what's the non-negotiable? So I don't think that you have to give up the foods that you love. You just have to have less of them. And once we start getting really restrictive in some of our dietary patterns, it's so much more difficult to stick with them. And we end up taking on foods that we don't enjoy. And we're, we're not looking at our cultural preferences, our personal preferences. All of that is really important. So we have to look at everything that surrounds why we put something on our plate and examine that first before we're going to look at behavior change. Yeah, if I if I may uh, add, uh, uh, Kristen and I we were talking yesterday about a study that looked at uh, all sorts of diet uh, to treat uh, you know metabolic syndrome. They looked at the keto diet, the low carb diet, the Mediterranean, etc. And it turns out um, the most effective diet to fix metabolic syndrome or fatty liver is a diet that you're going to be able to stick to it uh, because uh, you know this is a long term. Uh, uh, you know, journey, and you got to, you know, find the healthy diet that you like uh, by the end of the day. Uh, the other, the other things, uh, if I may add, uh, it turns out it's, uh, it's way more effective if you do it as a team, meaning as a family, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, it, it gives you a little bit more incentive to do things um, and, uh, and become more successful. Yeah, I think that I think the environment is such a big one, you know, not only like what you do or don't have in your house, 
but I don't want to, I'll get, this is a terrible analogy, but I, I do crave a lot of red meat. I'm genetically very low in iron. You know, there's a bunch of things to it. And so my husband's always like, Oh God, red meat, you know, so I will make him this beautiful, you know, fish with, and something else. And we, you know, we cook healthy in our house, but then I'll make a little tiny filet for myself. And I see him looking across at me, like, are you serious right now? So I think it's even, even that's a terrible example. Those are two kind of healthy foods. Imagine if one person's sitting there with their salad and their homemade dressing and, you know, their partner sitting there with a burger or a slice of pizza. I just think it, no matter who you are, my point is, is it's like, no matter who you are, I think it's really hard to do it if your environment isn't, isn't on board. Do you, do you th- sort of tell patients, Hey, listen, let's you, you, Kristen, I love the non-negotiable part, but do you feel like it's like, let's take out some of the worst habits a little bit, not about restriction fully. And then as people make progress, feel better, look better, then they're even more motivated to kind of continue and sort of take out the things that really block them from success. Yeah, for sure. Because I think that it's a progression and you're absolutely right. At the beginning, it's really difficult, right? I'm seeing all these people now that are seeing me for New Year's resolutions and here's what I want to do in 2024. And my question is always like, well, why didn't you see me in October? Why did we wait till this obscure date to start this? This is a really hard time because people are starting these new behaviors. Once they start dropping weight, once they see results and let's say their, their lipid panel looks a little better, then they're motivated and they start making other changes. So I think we need to be a little better. What I see with my patients with overall goal setting, if someone comes to me and says, Hey, my goal is to lose 50 pounds. You can't even wrap your head around that. It's just so difficult. It takes so long. So let's focus on my goal is I want to lose three pounds in the next two weeks. That's really doable. We can track that. We can really focus on that. And that is a goal that we can achieve most likely. So I think we need to be a little more realistic and not as rigid with our goal setting. And that's kind of the first key towards what what things do we want to change today, next month, the month after. We don't have to change everything overnight. That's when we get into a point where we're not going to be able to sustain those habits. Do you, is this true even with alcohol? Like if, let's say you have someone who's been an alcoholic and then, you know, there is sort of this detox process. Um, I think even when people have, you know, issues with things like that, it's even that you have to sort of do in a very methodical and processed way. I think people don't realize um, that that's true to even, you know, I say that with exercise, I'm not going to take you from sedentary in the couch. And then now you're going to start training like a professional athlete. It's a no go. You're going to get hurt and all these things. So I think this, this philosophy is really important to drive home to people. It's like incremental, realistic, small changes, because like you said, anything we can adhere to, then we have like a fighting, a fighting chance. Um, and so I really appreciate that in your book, you specifically say, and, and it's unfortunate because we're, we are motivated by aesthetic and numbers. You go, Hey, don't focus on weight loss, focus on good health. And, and it's, it's funny how a lot of people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good health. <laughs> you know, it's like focus on vitality. They're like, no, I want, I want to focus on my waistline. So we're, do you guys have special language where you kind of trick people or get them to buy, buy in differently? 
You know, most of my patients are female. A lot of them are perimenopausal, postmenopausal. That's really kind of the, the sweet spot of who I see. And I, I always say, and I use myself as an example, I always start the conversation with, you know, I have three pairs of jeans that are in the corner of my closet and I don't get the scale out, but I do pull those jeans out when I'm trying to make better habits. And I then determine, okay, where am I in this process? The genes are a great barometer. It's a great barometer for me as a clinician because it's really an assessment of waist size as opposed to this obscure number on the scale, which is basically all of our stuff, right? That number is your fat, your muscle, water. Um, so that's the way I start the conversation, especially with my female patients. Let's, you've got a pair of jeans back there in your closet somewhere. Pull them out. Start putting them on once a week. This is going to be a better assessment and some magical number that's going to create a false sense of happiness that you have to achieve and that you probably can't stick to, right? So that that's the approach that I take. Can we get into, and I found this really interesting and I was, I was like almost thinking of the different profiles. Um, if the recalibrator, I want, uh, we can start with the preventer, but the recalibrator almost seems, I don't want to say dangerous, but they seem like, well, look at, I look good, but you know, we call that skinny fat in some places, you know, whatever that is. So can you guys, um, explain to me, cause I didn't actually know about this, the four metabolic profiles. Yeah. So we wanted to create an environment for patients to not focus so much on weight, but focus on what we felt was important. Um, we did not think that BMI was an important factor. In fact, there's been some studies showing that it's not a great indicator of overall health. So we came up with these metabolic profiles that are essentially in line with what is your waist size? And then what is that in combination with your metabolic numbers? So what's your triglycerides, your, your blood sugar, your lipid panel, uh, the recalibrator, you said it perfectly. This is your typical skinny fat. So we have someone who is lean, but unhealthy. So what does that unhealthy component mean? That means that their triglycerides might be elevated. Perhaps their hemoglobin A1C, which is a three-month marker of blood sugar, perhaps that's elevated. So they can't actually look at themselves and say, oh, gosh, I'm not healthy. But the numbers prove and show a different story. So that is one profile. Um, if you look at the preventer, that's healthy and lean. So again, this book is meant towards people who want to prevent skinny liver. So your numbers are great. You're lean. Um, and then we have the opposite end of those. So we have someone who really needs assistance, uh, the regenerator, unhealthy, unlean. So waist size, if you're a female, is, is over 35. If you're a male, it's over 40. And you probably have at least two or three or more factors metabolically that are going on that puts your health at risk, make you more prone to fatty liver. Um, fine tuner, healthy, and uh, non-lean. So, you know, those are just the four ways of which we wanted people to look at themselves versus, okay, I'm this weight, my doctor told me I'm obese or I'm morbidly obese. I felt awful when he said that word or she said that word. Um, what does it mean for me and how I approach my overall metabolic health based on me as an individual? So even though it's a book, we try to be as personalized as possible. And this is our way of doing it. If I, if I may comment on uh, one group, which is the lean and unhealthy 
um, uh, quite honestly, we see uh, there are some probably genetic component to that, and I and, and I make sure I reinforce that point with my patients. You know, it's not all your fault. Um, you know, uh, some of us had unfortunately genetic makeup that set the stage for metabolic syndrome, diabetes, uh, you know, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, etc. But there are things that we can change. You know, can change your genetics, but can change your lifestyle. Get that diabetes under better control, uh, etc. Uh, we see that specifically in certain uh, cultures and the Asian uh, population, uh, patients from India. Uh, we see it quite uh, quite common where uh, you see lean uh, but uh, but have metabolic syndrome. Um, uh, they're still at risk to develop fatty liver, and and they uh, you know need to pay attention to those patients. Again, I, I know you can't. You don't want to overgeneralize. I'm just curious. Do you think in those cultures where maybe they eat less, so they're not, you know, I feel like in the U.S. we really, it's like our plates are huge and we're just down to eat a ton. Where other cultures, Asian cultures, Indian, you see, there's sort of, you know, culturally there's a they there's a modification. They're not eating as much, but maybe if they're high inflammatory foods like a lot of rice or certain things that might that that's maybe why that's happening. Uh, yes, but on uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, that's certainly a factor. Um, uh, you know, we've noticed uh, um, uh, uh, increased consumption in rice, in particular, like you mentioned, in the Asian culture. Uh, so less food, but probably the quality of food isn't that great, and it's very rich in sugar and carbs. Uh, uh, if you put that on the top of genetic makeup uh, that set the stage for metabolic syndrome, fatty liver, I feel that's play a significant component. Doc, I understand why you focused on the liver, but Kristen, what is it in, you know, cause you'll see people and, and you, you guys are talk about the microbiome as well. Um, but this is really about using the liver and fatty liver disease as a litmus for health or making changes and things like that. What was it that, um, you decided, okay, this is where I'm going to focus on this book. Really, my attention came to the fact that I had people that were coming to see me that referred to themselves as having a little bit of sugar problem. And typically what we find is that they were slightly insulin resistant. So they weren't at the point with their numbers that they were diagnosed as a type 2 diabetic, but they definitely have some, some challenges with insulin not being sensitive enough. Um, and I think what really prompted me to look at this were the people that came to me too late. And they were already, let's say, 10, 15 years into fibrosis, some of the middle stages of fatty liver. They had never looked at their liver as any aspect of what was going on within type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance. And now they came to me because they were scared and the fear factor was really setting in. So I really wanted to take the opportunity to, to kind of reach people before we get to these stages. You know, the liver is resilient. It is, it will take a beating and it won't even really give you symptoms until it's well on its way towards more significant disease. So I didn't want people to have to wait to that point. I didn't want to have to people have people sit across from me because they were fearful because their doctor figure out they have fatty liver and now everything's kind of like going haywire. So because it's so preventative and because we can reverse it so significantly in those first few stages, I really wanted to take the chance to grab people before they get to those latter stages. Uh, there is a stigma of liver disease. In my practice, you know, patients comes in and like, what? I, I have liver disease. I've never had significant alcohol. Like, you know, 
they're almost embarrassed to say that they have liver disease. Uh, but I think this book, and I, that's what I try to reinforce with my patient, is like, no, wait a second. Uh, uh, this liver disease is a result of fatty liver. It has nothing to do with alcohol. Indeed, the most common cause of liver disease in the country and probably worldwide is fatty liver associated with metabolic syndrome, with diabetes, um, uh, uh, diet that is rich in carbs, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, etc. Um, so that's the uh, uh, first point. And the second point, this is a very, very common disease. Um, believe it or not, 25% of the U.S. population affected by fatty liver. Um, you know, I, I, I tell my patient, look around you, one out of four people you're going to see today have this condition. You're not the only one. This is a very common condition. And kind of, you know, that uh, was one of the driver that, uh, you know, drove me and Kristen to, uh, you know, uh, bring this uh, epidemic, if you will, to the people attention. It's It's important to note as well that there are no pharmacological treatments uh, for this. So I think um, really that was that was probably our largest motivator. Let's get something out there that can help people from a lifestyle perspective, because right now we don't have any other option. Um, Dr. Ibrahim, I have to ask if you chose this field of medicine because it, because it is you can it is there's so much you can do to take control and reverse it. it what I'm just curious why you chose uh, this aspect of medicine. Um, you know, I've been always fascinated uh, by the uh, liver capacity to regenerate. Uh, indeed, there is no other organ in the body, like in, in internal organ, that regenerates other than the liver. And I'll give you, Gabby, a, a quick example. Uh, we do live donor liver transplant uh, where you take a piece of, a loved, uh, of, uh, of the liver from a loved one, a piece of a liver from a loved one, and give it to a patient who needs liver transplant. Uh, if you scan the donor, and the recipient, uh, just a few weeks after the surgery, the liver is back to the original size. Uh, it's almost like a science fiction. And there is no other organ in the body that does this other than the liver. Uh, the mechanism is poorly understood, and there is a lot of research going behind that. Uh, hopefully, one day, we'll be able to uh, uh, learn the mechanism of regeneration, and that will change the face of medicine, quite honestly. Um, and that's the reason why fatty liver is uh, treatable and uh, reversible. Uh, so I've been uh, always fascinated by the uh, liver and the capacity of regeneration. And that's technically what uh, dry, drove me there. Can you just spell out for people sort of some of the basic ways that, uh, you know, the liver impacts, like when we have fatty liver, all the things that it can impact in our health? Because I think sometimes we think of liver as something, yes, maybe we've learned if we're eating tons of things without fiber that have sugar, it goes straight to the liver versus through the gut or alcohol. But maybe I don't know that we realize like how the liver then impacts our the rest of our health. Yeah, no, great question. I uh, honestly, to put it in a simple way, I, um, I like the analogy of uh, the liver is a TSA gate. You go to the airport, you got to stop by the TSA before he gets in before you get in. And the same with the liver. Anything comes to your body has to stop filtered by the liver before it gets in. It's really the uh, first defense, if you will, before it gets into, before anything comes to the body. So when there is, when the liver is overwhelmed with fat or, or disease of any kind, you know, the security gate is broken and some of the bad guys going to get in. And when they build up in the system, uh, they will eventually cause a problem. Um, that's why I, I always uh, uh, say fatty liver is not just a liver disease, it's a multi-system disease. 
um, uh, for example, uh, if you do have fatty liver, you probably at slightly increased risk, at, at, at increased risk to develop heart attack and stroke. Uh, the most common cause of problems um, in patients with fatty liver is heart attack and stroke. Uh, patients with fatty liver are at risk to develop cancer, uh, not just liver cancer, but even cancer outside the liver. Uh, that speaks volume that the liver is really impacts uh, our entire body to your point. What about stress? Like you have people who are really busy and they're high performing and they're probably extra. Let's, let's give it a perfect case scenario. They're, they're moving three, four times a week. They're eating relatively healthy. Um, I'm, I'm always curious about stress and what that, how that impacts um, parts of our body and our, our overall health. Do, do you ever see it directly on the liver as well? Um, we did talk about that briefly in our book about the impact that things like cortisol, which is that stress hormone, um, and what really chronic stress can can really provide. Now, the other thing that stress impacts that is direct to the liver is increasing inflammatory processes. So, you know, I was listening to a, a podcast recently that Deepak Chopra did. And I thought it was so fascinating what he said. He said that inflammation is the pandemic of our times. This is what we need to focus on. And he related it back to trauma and stress. And so he said anyone that is has experienced trauma, whether that's acute or it's, it's trauma from any aspect, is most likely to be inflamed. So we know that the release of cortisol, we know that chronic stress that is not managed through any means is more likely to cause inflammation. So as inflammation is the base of any disease, it has a direct impact on the liver and is especially harmful when the liver is already insulted by the replacement of healthy tissue with fat. So I think there's like some kind of give and take that we can see that yes, inflammation will impact the liver and a fatty liver will be more likely to cause inflammation throughout the body. Um, but getting your stress under control, whether that means just meditation or taking a walk, everyone has, all of my patients have different ways of managing stress, can really have a nice direct impact, not just on the liver, but in terms of your eating habits as well. Right. You talk about, I really appreciate it. And for people listening inside the book, there's also, because people sometimes they need to be directed. So you have lots of suggestions and, you know, menus and food and meals and, and f family plan, as you mentioned earlier, like getting the family on board um, and even how to eat or plan for if you, I, I'm curious, a lot of people, if they're traveling for their work, this is really what kills them because it is hard, whether it's knowing what oils they're cooking the food in, or just Sometimes, you know, you're by yourself maybe and you're more lonely to so eat whatever versus like when you're at home and you're more on top of it. When you guys are seeing patients, are there real strategies that that you give them about? For me, I think it's maybe if somebody already has best practices, they sort of know how to deal with this. Let's say you have somebody who's really like going, okay, I'm really going to work at this. I'm going to make a change here. This is hard for me and I'm going to do it. How do you, what are the baby steps for them as they start? Yeah. So I think baby steps, I think, um, you know, being relatable to your patient is always number one, having the ability to check back in with me and not feeling intimidated that you can't shoot an email or even a text. Um, so really just kind of having that accountability Think Dr. Hannah and I said it really well that having that buddy system, getting someone to do this with you, we've seen that to be much more successful than just doing it on your own. 
And I think that we minimize sometimes how great of an impact a baby step can have. So I'll give you an example. I had a patient uh, just a few weeks ago. This person does not like fruits and vegetables, not willing to try anything. I mean, just nothing, right? To his own admission, he had told me that his parents gave him fries and nuggets when he was a kid and he never got out of this. We're talking about like a high powered CEO who was having fries and nuggets at these business dinners. And I am not joking when I say that. So we started kind of down this rabbit hole, if you will, about what, is there any fruit that you like? And he said, oh, I kind of like apples. Like we're just going to focus on apples. And so that's all we did. I said, okay, keep having the nuggets, the fries. We're not there yet. But for the first few weeks, can we just like get more apples to replace some of the snacks that you're having? So maybe to replace some of the pretzels, things like that. And to your point, once he started having that, he was willing to look at some other options. So I think we go too too hard, too fast, and we think it's going to be sustainable. And it's, most of the time, it's not. So I think instead of looking at what my patients would refer to as deprivation, let's look at what we can add in. The more things we add in, it's just going to be easier and more natural to take away some of those foods that are harming our health. Rather than me saying, oh, those nuggets and fries are bad for you. Let's just take that out. Yeah, I, I give a quick example, uh, if I may, from earlier today, actually. Um, I, um, I had an agreement with a patient of mine with fatty liver is like, okay, well, let's just change one thing. And I really don't want you to change anything else in your diet. And that thing was regular soda. Let's just stop drinking regular soda and forget about the rest of your diet, at least for now. And let's just do that for the next, like, you know, that's your challenge for January, for, uh, for the rest of the month and see what happens. I bet you, I think, you know, we're going to see a significant improvement just by that one uh, change. I read somewhere that the average American consumes 20% of, they drink 20% of their calories. Um, Doc, maybe you could explain, because I think people don't understand everyone. Okay. Fruit, is it safe? Is it not safe? Could you just share, maybe explain, you know, sugar with fiber. So a natural sugar with fiber, what happens in the body versus like you said, a sugary soda, which that sugar, I, I think goes straight to the liver. Maybe you could, cause I think people don't even, they don't even realize, um, you know, what the gut does and how it, how it works in our favor. Sure. Yeah. The, um, I would say two, just to make it simple, two major problem with the uh, processed sugar. Um, problem number one, like you said, Gabby, it will go straight into your system and, um, uh, you know, the sugar goes up. And when you have too much sugar on board, uh, you know, your pancreas is going to produce insulin to bring it down. So you're going to have a lot of insulin on board. Well, guess what? Insulin going to encourage the liver to make fat and store fat. And that's going to lead eventually to fatty liver and insulin resistance. Insulin resistance will make you crave food more. So you go into a vicious cycle where you're eating carbs, producing too much insulin, uh, this will lead to fatty liver, make you crave more carbs. So you go into a vicious cycle. That's, that's, uh, that's problem number one. Uh, problem number two, uh, the, the processed sugar will change your microbiome, meaning the bacteria in the gut, uh, into a bad bacteria. Replace the good guys with bad guys. And those bad guys can cause a lot of problems. But one specific problem, believe it or not, the bad bacteria in the gut uh, based on a recent study, it will produce alcohol. 
and produce sugar. Um, uh, and that's technically part of the mechanism where the bad bacteria are going to lead to liver damage because it's producing alcohol without drinking alcohol yourself and producing sugar without even uh, eating sugar yourself. And uh, uh, that's part of the reason why every now and then I see someone in my clinic is like, I promise I've been following the right things and I'm unable to lose weight. Well, because they have the bad bacteria that producing probably bad things, sugar and alcohol and causing trouble. Um, I mean, I can go on and on, but those are two quick uh, explanation why the bad, what's it, why bad sugar, the processed sugar is different than the natural one. Kristen, you, you focus a lot on the microbiome in, in connection to all of this. I, you know, it's such a vast and um, kind of limitless, limitless, unlimited space. You know, people be like, good bacteria, bad, the bad guys, the good guys, you know, healing the gut, all of these kind I think for a lot of people, it, it feels so foreign, like, well, where would you start? Um, how do you get patients? Um, what practices, what foods, what things do you sort of say, hey, you know, these are the baby steps towards getting that gut, that microbiome high functioning. And, and why do you care about that? Right. I think most of my patients understand things like getting more fermented foods in their diet, things of that nature. Um, when you were asking about fiber, that's a huge component for me. And the way I refer to it with my patients is I ask them to only have foods that create competition for digestion. So what that means is that if you're going to have a piece of licorice, there's zero competition for anything to be digested other than that sugar, right? You have the licorice and your, your insulin goes up, blood sugar goes up. You have this whole uh, array of, of symptoms that occur. You probably feel great and then you don't feel great once blood sugar drops. Competition for digestion occurs when fiber is attached to that food. So if we go back to the example of the apple, you have a bite of the apple, there's fiber in the peel, there's fiber in the meat. And now your body is saying, I got this sugar and this tastes great, but I got something else that I have to take down and I, I don't know what to do with it. So the body can't, can't metabolize fiber, can't break it down. It doesn't have the ability to do it. That whole process slows down blood sugar and it slows down how much insulin is needed. Everything slows down because there's competition for digestion. The fiber piece is so important for the microbiome because we look at things like prebiotics. So prebiotics are non-digestible fibers that help those probiotics thrive, flourish, give them good food. When we have very low fiber diets and we don't have a lot of variety in our diet, we lack what's called microbial diversity. So we don't have a lot of diverse different microorganisms. We just have a few, and those might work for us, but they may not. So where I start is that competition for digestion and let's get variety, right? So if I have someone come in and say, oh, my diet's pretty good. Like I eat a whole bunch of kale and I love kale. What do you eat outside of kale? Like kale's great. It's sexy. It's trending. It's great. What do you like outside of kale? And if the question is, well, I don't think about it really that much. Let's now look at, okay, what other variety of foods can you get? What other colors can you get? How about some spinach? How about some broccoli? How about some Brussels sprouts? So getting, getting that variety can lead to microbial diversity. Microbial diversity, we know, helps in healing the overall microbiome. Do you, do you ever like, because a lot of people, it is funny when you, you get people who are like, I don't eat that. I don't eat vegetables. Right. Do you ever use supplementation like a powdered greens or any of that? And I know it's different because it is powdered. It's 
it doesn't have the same kind of fiber and all those things. How do you guys feel about that? That's that is a way to support people's health. Yeah, I, I think that it can be a great way to get some nutrient density in while someone is trying to increase some of the variety in their diet. I think what really matters, and this is why I really want my patients to bring these things physically to me, is looking at the ingredients, right? So finding things that have um, something as close to nature as possible and really trying to find ones that don't have a lot of additional supplementation. So the greens might be a great idea, but then when you have all these other vitamins coming in with it or potentially herbs that could interact with already medications that they're on, then it can become a little bit more problematic. So the more, the more true to nature we have, the better the approach. I'm not a huge fan of having it as a long-term solution. I think that it's a great thing that we can focus on while we are really trying to, to get more produce, more fresh foods into our diet. This podcast is brought to you by Vionic Shoes. I got my first pair of Vionic Shoes, I guess about four months already, maybe almost five months ago. And since then, I've gotten at least two more styles and given my daughter the Georgie Mule as well. But I got the Willa slip-on flat. So this is a beautiful essential flat. I mean, I am tall, so flats really work for me. And it gives you this beautiful materials with a very supportive footbread. So if I've got to walk around for hours all day, my feet aren't sore. They've got over 12 colors. So it goes with any outfit. And I also got the Uptown Loafer. I was traveling yesterday and I like to wear footwear where I feel like I'm protected. You know, when you're at the airport running around, it's kind of dirty. There's people, um, but so comfortable because Vionic really started in functional footwear. So no matter what, you know that your feet are going to be feeling rested and not sore no matter how long you wear them. However, they use incredible materials, great styles. So your foot looks cute. I mean, listen, let's face it. We want the best of both worlds. And the other part of this is I have a size 12. So they have a ton of styles in a size 12. I don't have to cram my foot into anything. All the styles come in an 11 and they have a great offer for you. For starters, they offer a 30-day guarantee, wear them, love them, or return them for a full refund within 30 days. So you can figure out, hey, these work for me. It goes with my clothing, my lifestyle. And if you use the code Gabby at checkout, you'll get 15% off your entire order. And all you have to do is go to vionicshoes.com when you log into your account. And it is a one-time use only. That's vionicshoes.com, V-I-O-N-I-C-S-H-O-E-S.com. And use the code Gabby at checkout for 15% off your entire order. This podcast is brought to you by Timeline Nutrition. I think my friends know that one of my favorite gifts is like really cool, cutting edge new supplements. And somebody gave me MitaPure by Timeline. And this is where I learned about something called urolithin A. And the studies show that 500 milligrams of urolithin A alone significantly increases muscle strength and endurance with no other changes in lifestyle. It upgrades your body's cellular power grid. I mean, who doesn't need that? So it gives your body the energy it needs to optimize. Now, my hope is, listen, you're doing best practices. You're getting to bed, you're moving, you're eating healthy, you know, whole foods. 
But here's where some of the fun stuff comes in when you can get that edge. And urolithin A is one of the first postbiotics shown to have major health benefits and has become available now to all of us. Not only that, in three different forms. So they've got the berry powder. It's great to mix whether you're taking yogurt or maybe a smoothie. I just put it in water personally. It tastes great. They've got a protein powder. You can get that muscle health benefits of whey protein or soft gels. Maybe you're on the go, but you're a disciplined supplement taker. Whichever way you'd like to try MitoPure, Timeline has a wonderful offer for you. Timeline is offering 10% off your first order of MitoPure. And all you have to do is go to timelinenutrition.com slash Gabby. And if you use the code Gabby, you'll get 10% off your order. That's T-I-M-E-L-I-N-E-N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N.com slash Gabby. And if it's me, I'm getting, they've got a starter pack so you can see all three formats and then you can figure out, hey, this works best for my lifestyle or maybe use it as a blend. So head to timelinenutrition.com slash Gabby. This podcast is brought to you by Lumi Deodorant. I learned about Lumi from one of my daughters. I think that they don't even go to the store anymore. They just order everything in the mail. And I thought, okay, what are we getting now? Deodorant. And this is what one of my daughters bought. I've since have learned they've got all these other incredible products. They've got a body wash. They have these really cool deodorant wipes. You can just pop them in your bag. Um, and they've also, I did a little bit of homework because I wanted to know what is, what's this kid buying. They've gotten over 275,000 five-star reviews. They are baking soda-free, paraben-free, and it was created by an OBGYN. And if you're curious, they have a great offer for you today. So They've got the starter pack. It's a per, it's really perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant. That's the one I was telling you about. Cream tube deodorant and two free products of your choice. Like if you want to try that mini body wash or deodorant wipes and free shipping. So it's a special offer for the listeners. New customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code. That's over 40% off their starter pack too. So if you use the code Gabby for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com, that's the code Gabby at L-U-M-E-D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T.com. And don't forget the code Gabby. Dr. Ibrahim, I'm I'm curious, another really confusing thing for a lot of people is, you know, natural sugars or, you know, it's like, oh, stevia, it's good, it's bad. Could would you could you share, you know, which things still impact the liver? Because there's they're getting quite fancy on where it, it's like, oh, it doesn't impact your your, you know blood sugar, but somehow I would be interested to know, does it conversely still impact the liver? Uh, the, the main things would be um, changing the microbiome, be honest with you, uh, with that kind of sugar. And that changes in microbiome will eventually uh, lead, like we mentioned, to uh, liver damage because the bad microbiome, the bad bacteria, the bad guy is going to produce some substance which, uh, which affect the liver. Um, uh, I, I tell um, I tell my, my patients everything in moderation. Um, you know, um, uh, the, uh, I, I always go natural. Natural is the way to go when when it gets to sugar and pretty much everything else. Uh, but if you really really like your stevia, um, probably okay, but in moderation. 
and um, uh, because it will eventually uh, lead to changes in your microbiome, and those changes can uh, cause damage to your liver or can make the recovery from liver disease difficult or uh, or, or, or possibly or, or maybe impossible. So when we say natural, you're saying real honey, you know, brown sugar, like what? Because uh, again, people they're confused and overwhelmed with not only a ton of options. My favorite is like sugar, alcohol. It's like, are you guys kidding me? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, when you like, you mean whatever is in the food and go for that. But if someone goes, Hey, I want to put a little in something. Do you, do you prefer a certain type? Uh, yeah, I would, uh, I would say when I say natural, uh, the, uh, natural sugar in, in food, fruits and vegetables is a perfect example. Uh, that would be, that would be okay. Um, uh, but if you'd like to add, uh, uh, you know, sugar every every now and then, um, I think that would be fine. Um, we uh, we actually in in our book uh, we we staying away from the keto diet. Uh, we don't like to uh, say no sugar or uh, you know number one because it's very difficult to stick uh, with uh, with very low sugar. And number two, it turns out if you stick with keto diet or low sugar on the long run, that may cause problem. Um, so if you do, if you, the the uh, technically the diet uh, recommendations we have in the book were mostly uh, uh, moderate carbs intake. Okay? Uh, we're not against uh, adding sugar every now and then uh, to your diet or or having like you know a chocolate or, or you know a, a pie every now and then. I think that would be fine. Uh, like we said, everything in moderation. Uh, we like we like the moderate carbs intake. We don't like too low. We don't like too much. It's almost like if people get that lifestyle component right, then they do, they're not going to get killed by a birthday cake night or something. The way if someone's already kind of on this threshold where every little thing they do irritates their body, versus you know you're working out, you're eating overall really well that, okay, these things like a chocolate or a piece of cake isn't, isn't going to kill you. I'm, I'm curious about the keto component. If someone goes too long on keto, um, are you, what are you seeing inflammation or what are you seeing that shows up that it can be damaging? Um, we looked at some of the data on keto and it was really the sustainability of keto. Um, so I think we definitely need, we need more research on really, if you're staying on keto for over 18 months to 24 months, what does that look like? There are some really positive aspects of keto long-term. There's no doubt about that. I have plenty of patients on it that have completely helped their cholesterol become normal without pharmacological approaches. What we were seeing is it's hard to stick with. So our whole concept was let's try and find things. Dr. Hannanay said it perfectly, you know, find the diet that you like, but also happens to happen to be a little bit more nutrient dense than the diet that you're trying to improve. So it's the sustainability of keto that was a little concerning for us that most people can stick with it three to six months, but then they tend to go back based on the data to their old habits. What are the things that you're saying, hey, to people, if you're going to have it on your plate, vegetables, obviously, or carbohydrates, but maybe you could just share some of your favorites. And, and you really break this down so easily in the book when you're leading people to carbs, because I think you have a group of people that think carbs is bread and bagels. And then you have another group that goes, well, no, that's rice. And then you have another group that realizes like actually vegetables and sweet potatoes. So 
where do you guys uh, educate people on when you say carbs? Yeah, we really took the approach of looking at digestible carbs or net carbs. And that is the amount of carbohydrate that the body is actually going to digest, metabolize, et cetera, after we deduct certain other compounds, such as fiber. So because fiber is not digestible, let's just say for even numbers, you have a pasta that has 10 grams of carbohydrate, five of which are fiber, only five grams of carbohydrate will actually be digested because the body can't digest the fiber. So we did take a net carb approach. Uh, the regenerator is going to have a different carb approach than the preventer, for example. But what we're really focusing on at the high level is complex carbohydrates. So looking at, okay, let's look at having more whole grains. If you have white rice, let's just make the swap for brown rice. Um, but depending on what your metabolic type is, that's when we would be more specific on amount. So someone who is insulin resistant or type 2 diabetic and has all these other components going on in health, they might do really well with a lower carb approach versus a moderate carb approach, which is about 45% of total calories for someone who's just the preventer, just wants to notices that they're they're getting older, perhaps they're menopausal, they're noticing that that three-month marker of blood sugar is just creeping up a little bit. Maybe I want to kind of taper down and have a little less carbs, but still have a lot of nutrient density. So we're talking complex carbs, obviously cruciferous vegetables, which are very high in fiber. Um, we're talking about things like nuts and seeds, which nuts and seeds can have some carbohydrate in them, but what we're trying to do is not become people that are fixated or, dare I say it, obsessed with the carb count, but rather looking at what's the nutrient density and how much carbohydrate is my body going to be forced to process based on my other health indicators. Doc, I can't, I can't imagine that you thought when you were in medical school that you're going to be sitting and talking quite so much and breaking it down um, about the nutrition aspect and then on top of it, what about the movement component? What What's the conversation around that? Because I feel, I, I could be wrong, but I feel like the food is the, is the hardest because it's something we do th for a number of reasons besides being hungry several times a day. I almost feel like once people can get into a movement pattern, it's easy. But can you guys share the role of exercise in helping support a healthy liver? You know, one one thing I, I reinforce with my patient about exercise, you know, we're busy and I understand you don't have time to, uh, you know, go to the gym every day. But based on a recent study from Australia uh, showed that all you need is 15 to 20 minutes uh, uh, every other day. Um, and, uh, and, and the study actually suggests that interval training would be probably better, meaning if you can, if, if your physical status allows you jump in on treadmill or a standing bike and, you know, go interval training, kill yourself for like a minute or so if you, if you, if you can, and then slow down and, and go up again and, and slow down. And, and, you know, all of us have 15 minutes every other day uh, or three days a week. And it turns out that that's technically the kind of exercise that you need to burn the fat in your liver. Um, um, certainly exercise is very, very useful. Uh, it's a, it's a wonderful component to diet uh, but I reinforce uh, the fact that uh, it's not uh, exercise alone is not enough. 
uh, you got to combine exercise with healthy diet. Um, uh, myself, actually, I try like, you know, when I cheat with my diet, you know, every now and then it's like, okay, well, I better go to the gym to burn like, you know, what I just ate. Um, so, um, so that's kind of, you know, that's kind of my two sentence on exercise. There's some very interesting data that we've seen over the past uh, decade looking at the benefits of blood sugar management and even looking at just uh, just a, a basic walk after a meal. So we've seen some studies in diabetic patients where you have a meal, you take a walk after as opposed to sitting on the couch and, and watching the evening news and what that does to your post-meal blood sugar status. And it's really quite fascinating. So if our goal is really to look at what is the blood sugar? How can we manage it a little more? How can we make this create this this state of homeostasis? Then maybe even just walking, right? We we don't have to become what you had said earlier. We don't have to become the professional athletes. We can just take a walk. And so I think that's that's the other component. Um, the data is not very strong that exercise does a huge amount of benefit to weight loss, but it's very strong in terms of weight loss maintenance. So at some point you have to bring it in for chronic disease risk, for the reduction of certain cancers. Uh, you might as well do it now, but it doesn't have to be that you're going to run a marathon. I, I tell my patients, just be more vertical throughout the day. Just be more vertical, walk a little bit more, and that will go a really a far way. And, and on that note, I, uh, you know, I tell, I tell my patient not to discourage themselves if they're not losing weight, uh, you know, with because exercise that Kristen said, going to be useful, uh, even if you don't lose weight. Uh, maybe you're replacing, you know, the, um, the fat with muscles, uh, and, and uh, that's why you're not losing weight. Um, uh, yeah, and this has been proven actually in uh, really in, in scientific research uh, that patients with fatty liver benefit uh, from exercise um, regardless whether they lose weight or not. And, and it's funny too, because I think when you train a lot, people have to realize Sometimes you eat a little more if you're more hungry, whatever. But also, I think I feel at times you you can get more watery. Your muscles can sort of get watery. I think there's a we get especially women, and you said that earlier, Kristen. We get so afraid of we're so fixated on numbers, um, and I I think that's a dangerous place. So if you what if you have a patient who comes in and they really they're behind the eight ball, like it's that place where the body it's not, it's not, it's not giving you, it's not working the way it's supposed to. So everything is harder, right? Like getting the benefits from eating or moving, it's harder, all of these things. Is there a way, do you, do you sort of make it a little more drastic or, or dialed in for them for an extended period of time to try to get them into momentum? Uh, I think sometimes it's about looking at uh, their dietary pattern and trying to pinpoint what could be certain things that they might not be recognizing as holding them back. And I'll give a great example. And I saw this a lot during the pandemic. I had all of these patients come to me again, mostly female, and they would say, gosh, I'm doing everything to lose weight. It's not working. And at the end of it all, I realized that it was that glass of red wine every night that really was killing it. So that is an example of, okay, let's look at the dietary pattern. And many of these women would say, well, I only have one glass and, and that falls be be behind the uh, American Heart Association guidelines, right? one glass a day. Um, but that one glass is five ounces. So most people are not measuring. So it's usually more. 
even though that is the recommendation and, and there's some argument whether or not that's too much. Um, and I, I would think it is too much. I've heard like a thimble, like two ounces, which me almost sounds like just take a shot of vinegar, which I don't know. It's like, <laughs> right. Right. It's like, right. And they really, when you see what's recommended, it's like, yeah. And we, we have such, uh, there are so many great non-alcoholic, like, elixirs and things like that right now that is just like this is i actually see now that people have become a lot more laser focused on what some of these things are with alcohol and some of the challenges um now i'm getting questions well do you know any of these brands are there is there a brand you love is there one that has less sugar than others um so it's interesting how the conversation has shifted but that's just one example uh another example could be that people are simply eating to fullness and not eating until they are no longer hungry. So I don't really believe in, in portion control, but I do believe in listening to our body. And so that that could be another thing. Sometimes it's just that we're eating too much. We're overfueling and we're not stopping once we feel that hunger is gone. We're stopping once we feel full. And so we've overfueled. So even just cutting back on that sometimes, and, and that doesn't happen overnight, can be a trick to, to really get people to start seeing some change. What about hydration in all of this? How is there a way that sort of diluting things or making sure you're hydrated is, I mean, I know it's great for your body and all of these things, but is there some role that plays with the health of your liver? Yeah, certainly dehydration does not uh, do any good for uh, your liver and for your own body. So, I mean, hydration, hydration, hydration. And uh, how do you hydrate yourself? Um, um, you know, well, stay away from the uh, uh, the sugary uh, uh, fluids, if you will, and um, and uh, uh, you know, water probably natural water is the way to go. And um, but on that note, I can bring uh, one um, uh, uh, thing that would be beneficial to the liver, and it may help a little bit, uh, which would be coffee. Um, um, uh, coffee, actually, I mean. Uh, people ask all the time about like, you know, what can I take to help my liver? Herb supplements, uh, water, hydration, etc. But really the, the main uh, uh, supplements, if you will, that has been proven over and over to be beneficial to the liver would be coffee, uh, black coffee. Uh, ideally black, don't mix it with anything if you can, and, uh, and two cups of coffee a day. Um, uh, you don't want to overdo it because it may drive the blood pressure and, and the sleep and, and stress and other things, obviously, uh, out of control. Um, two cups a day of coffee, that's probably the, uh, uh, the, the way to go to help your liver prevent fatty liver disease and even help reverse fatty liver disease when it's present. And we, we have some studies showing um, that dehydration sometimes can be confused for hunger. So even just staying hydrated can be really beneficial. And in, in if we're trying to kind of control our intake throughout the day, dehydration really sometimes my patients will say, oh gosh, I thought I was hungry, but I wasn't, I was just dehydrated. So it's another reason why it's, it's important amongst all the other reasons why hydration is so important. Are there, I, you, you did say the coffee, but are there any supplements that you go, hey, these are really, they do a lot of good loving on your, on your liver? Uh, other supplements would be uh, vitamin E. Um, there are uh, several studies uh, on the use of vitamin E in fatty liver. It turns out it decreases fat in the liver and it decreases inflammation as well. Um, it's antioxidant. Uh, um, 
so it's not surprising to uh, to do good for the liver uh, from that end. Uh, we don't like to take vitamin E long term. Um, uh, we like to take it short term uh, because it turns out long term use of vitamin E can potentially lead to long term side effect, uh, but short term use would be just fine. Um, uh, those are the uh, two main supplements in my practice uh, that has been shown uh, to be beneficial for fatty liver. I typically will recommend uh, omega three fatty acids. Most of the most of the liver studies do focus on the marine form of DHA and EPA. Uh, ALA is is great as well. So there's if you can look at algae oil or some vegan versions of that. If you're vegan, it's fine. Uh, but DHA and EPA have been found to help reduce fibrosis in the liver. If you have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, because fibrosis is kind of in that middle stage where you're starting to get inflammation, you're starting to get the replacement of healthy liver tissue, uh, omega-3 could have a great impact there, especially if you're someone who is not eating fatty wild fish. I think the recommendation is two and a half days per week. I don't know where the half comes from, but that's the official recommendation. Um, but if you're not eating enough fish, definitely an omega-3 fatty acid supplement. And, and on that note, uh, it might be worth mentioning what it's not, what supplements not good for the liver or not uh, beneficial uh, to the liver. I see it in my practice all the time. Uh, uh, patients ask about milk sisal and um, uh, milk sisal and the liver. I don't think milk sisal is bad for the liver. I just don't think it's, it does any good. Um, you know, it's been studied in, in the management of fatty liver disease and really didn't do anything. Um, so that's like, you know, one very popular, if you will, uh, supplement out there that I think, you know, it's overused or overestimated. And then there are a lot of supplements and herbs and, and things purchased online that detox your liver, et cetera. I, 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 I would say, um, you know, they're not scientifically proven. Um, every now and then I do see uh, liver damage from those supplements. So be careful out there. Just stick with the stuff that are really has been studied and proven and regulated. Uh, I wouldn't just go and, and purchase things that are unregulated because they may cause more harm than good. Kristen, you probably hear this uh, more often. The, people will do cleanses and then it's like the eighth day and you're going to do a liver flush, right? Um, right. <laughs> you know, a half a cup of olive oil and grapefruit juice or whatever, and then lay on that side and suffer through the night. Um I'm just curious, let's say someone, things are healthy, everything's good and people are, what, what, you know, trends and things like that, they, they, they come and, and they go. How do you, when that shows up, how do you feel about that or the best way to do that or not do that? Right. Well, um, so because we're always really looking to follow the science, we don't really have any data, definitely not strong data, long-term data, any randomized control trials that show that some of these liver cleanses actually do anything. So really at best, it's going to be neutral. There will be no effect whatsoever. At worst, you could have some electrolyte imbalances. You could have some damage, especially if you're doing it on a more frequent basis. Um, you know, the, the liver is in the body for a reason. Uh, we didn't talk about it. We've talked a lot about sugar and, and fat and everything like that. But the liver is, and, and Dr. Hanane said it great when he talked about being the TSA. It is the place that detoxifies everything that comes in that needs detoxification. So it's not just alcohol. That's a toxin. We have toxins coming into our body all the time. 
and the liver is responsible for breaking that down. So as long as we're taking care of the liver, we don't need a liver cleanse to kind of boost that, to, to help that. And we don't have the science supporting it. So if we don't have the science, I would rather my patient take the $100 or more that they spent on the liver cleanse and head to the grocery store and get some great vegetables, right? That That's a better idea in my head and a better investment in health. Again, I am somebody who has some distance. I've been in this a really long time, but I try to look at it through the lens of somebody who's trying to start best practices. And I think, oh my God, they're, they're coming at you not only with, okay, eat like this, not you, but the, you know, the idea of being healthy, but it's like, oh, but don't eat that because that's not organic. And like corn is, you know, the most modified food. And now we have, you know, everything's GMO or there's plastics in the water. And it's all these things that I think they almost, I don't want to say they paralyze people, but you know, instead of step-by-step, like what you're talking about, I feel like they go, oh, why bother? It's all, you know, not going to work anyway. I'm, I'm curious about two things. One is, do you direct people towards like, Hey, listen, it does matter what vegetables you're eating. Try to get organic. Um, you know, because again, less, maybe less detoxing if things are sprayed or what have you. I, I wonder if you have to go that far into the conversation with people. Um, we do go into the dirty dozen and the clean 15, which is from the environmental working group. We do not go any further than that. Uh, you know, it's kind of goes back to, you can get a really great high sugar, refined grain, vegan cookie at the grocery store. You can also get one that's made organically, right? So in, in our world, we recognize, and in our patients, we recognize that the, the quest for organics, if you want to go organic, it's great. A lot of our patients don't have that luxury. And so really it's better that they simply eat vegetables versus I'm not going to have a vegetable if it's not organic. And I think the Dirty Dozen does a great job with that. So things like apples, strawberries, uh, grapes, things that are on it every single year. If you can get organic, that might be beneficial because of the high amount of pesticides that these foods have. But if you can't, it's not going to make or break it. It's better for you to have that non-organic apple than it is to never have a fruit. So I think we need to look at it a little bit more high level, give ourselves a break. Uh, I always joke that if you study kale for 30 years, one study is going to come out and say it's going to kill you, right? So that's like, it's a joke. But the point is, we can seek out the study that we're trying to look for and really not know if it's a quality piece of data. And I think that's what a lot of patients do is, well, I saw this or I saw this online. Um, it's really about getting back to the basics. You know, M Michael Pollan defined food as something that comes from nature, is fed from nature and will eventually rot. And quite frankly, that's probably the best approach to how we should look at our dietary pattern. You know, you hear about like certain cooking oils especially ones that have been heated up and cooled back down. Like people go to restaurants and they have, you know, fries or something in oils that have, you know, the temperature has been up and down, never mind if it's canola or other vegetable. Is there, do you have a particular feeling about uh, the types of oils that you would like to direct people towards, whether they're eat, putting in salad dressing or eating themselves or, you know, using to cook? Uh, you, you know, I mean, um, uh, olive oil, quite honestly, um, uh, you know, has been shown to be uh, beneficial to the liver. Uh, and that's part of the reason why the Mediterranean diet uh, 
It's probably one of the um, best diet um, in general um, for cardiac health and certainly for liver health. Uh, studies from the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the most prestigious medical journal we have out there, uh, studied the Mediterranean diet um, in terms of cardiovascular uh, events, and it showed that it decreased the incidence of cardiovascular events, heart attack and stroke on the long term. Um, and the same happened with fatty liver disease. Um, so to answer your questions, uh, th that brings me into olives and olives oil, probably be, uh, the, the, uh, the way to go when it gets into oil. Can we, can we end this? Well, first of all, I'm also curious because both of you seem to be, you know, you know, you know so much already, but it seems like you continue to learn and pay attention. I'm, I'm just curious where you both individually go to, to, you know, see what's going on and what's out there and, and how you both continue to keep evolving and learning. Uh, so I think, I don't know if, if Dr. Hannity would say this, we're both products of the Cleveland Clinic. So I feel like most of the time when we weren't with patients, we were looking at journal articles. We were looking at what was in the, the data, what were the studies that were coming out um, on any given week. And I continue to do that. If, if I'm presenting, I, I want to start off with, hey, this study came out today. And here's the breakdown of what it looked like. And here's the interpretation that I can provide that that might help. Um, so I think the data is always the most important aspect. I think we also always have to have our eyes open to misinformation that's being provided. Um, because a lot of times I don't want to be the first person to, to hear about it when a patient brings it up to me. Hey, this trend is going on. Or I heard you should drink this juice. And this is great. Um, so just being aware of all of those things that that really are touching our patients' lives um, and trying to make them help them to, to make the best decision that makes sense for them without having them feel that they're being deprived or told how to eat. I, I echo what Kristen said. Um, I'm, I'm also actively involved in uh, research uh, for fatty liver, um, uh, both uh, on the diet side and the pharmacological side uh, to treat fatty liver disease. But above all, quite honestly, I learned uh, the most from my patients. I feel like, you know, every day that is like they teach me something. Um, and uh, and that's, um, um, that's priceless. I think I hear that a lot, that the patients, the openness exchange back and forth. Um, I, you know, you said something earlier about what, how we learn to eat as children. And I've had a lot of people say to me like, oh, well, I just, it's my genetics. And it's like, no, you, you inherit, you, you inherited the genetics, but you also inherited the lifestyle. And I think it's reminding people that our genetics are fine. We just have to hit other levers and, and that we have, you know, people, I think they don't think that they could possibly either be that, uh, manage their weight that way, or, you know, be built that way. Could you guys in, in, in wrapping this up, share if, if it comes to top of mind, just a, a story of success that really, um, you know, has inspired you? Yeah. So I think um, when you were mentioning genetics, I was thinking of a patient who I was doing a nutrigenomics test with. So we Cleveland Clinic and Integrative Medicine, we have nutrigenomics testing and we do a lot of these tests. So that's just breaking down what are some of the, the genes, 45 to 70 genes we might go through within one test um, that are related to lifestyle. So someone came in and there was a lot of genetics involved in heart health, heart disease, et cetera. 
And I had said, well, your genetics are your predisposition, but not your destiny. So really the goal is trying to determine how we turn a gene on or off. Um, so I think from that perspective, and this person had type two diabetes, but did not have fatty liver. I think from that perspective, what we looked at were where, where are your genetics really doing well? Where is it great? And let's really focus on that, whether it was the genes associated with physical activity or nutrient metabolism. And then what are the very small pieces we can look at from the cardiac side that we can maybe make some small changes? Um, and that really was, I think, this, this theory that this is your predisposition, not your destiny. You don't have to become your mom or your dad who had the heart attack at 45. Um, you're, you're, you're more likely than someone who doesn't have those genetics, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen. So what can you do? What can you take control of where you can control that within yourself and try and prevent what you saw come before you? I can think of story just uh, happened recently where uh, a patient of mine had uh, uh, fatty liver disease and uh, unfortunately was diagnosed at later stage uh, where uh, she already had advanced liver disease and uh, and wasn't doing too good. And, um, and uh, uh, you know, before she's gone, um, she asked her son uh, to promise her one thing, which is uh, would take care of himself and get screened, uh, uh, you know, for these conditions early on. And he came to see me in the clinic. He's like, you know, well, you took care of my mom, this, that person. And, you know, and I had a promise to her to uh, come and take care of this. Um, uh, you know, and we talked about genetic makeup. Uh, you know, they probably have fatty liver runs in the family. Um, you know, we don't have control over that. But like we said earlier, we do have control of how to turn off and turn on those genes. Uh, you know, the lifestyle changes could turn those genes off. And, uh, um, and I think he's on the track to uh, get things fixed and hopefully not end up with advanced liver disease. Is there any kind of final invitation or something I missed that feels really that's on either one of your minds that it feels important to remind people or invite people? Yeah, I, I think um, when we think about this book or we just think about our own practices and who we see on a day to day basis, you know, I think it's um, most people will assume, well, I don't have anything wrong with my liver, so I don't need this book. But the, the nomenclature, the, the way that the liver organizations refer to non-alcoholic non fatty liver disease has changed in the past six months. It's now referred to as MAFLD, which is metabolic-associated non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Anyone that is really struggling with any component of metabolic health, uh, whether that be high triglycerides or an elevated waist circumference, whatever that is, this is, um, you know, maybe an approach that they want to consider. So I think um, a lot of times when we think about the liver and what we're trying to communicate, we never want to be doom and gloom. That's why I said it's resilient. It's, it's really going to work for you if you work for it. Um, but I think this can impact a lot of people just from the fact that a lot of people have diabetes or insulin resistance, et cetera. This can be really um, a really proactive way to prevent ever having to see someone like Dr. Hananay in his office because you've gotten to that point. Yeah, no, I um, uh, I guess the big teaching point is that this is a very not to be alarmist, but this is really a common problem. I mean, uh, this is a fact that twenty five percent of the of the world has fatty liver disease. Um, that's obviously a huge problem, but the uh, but this problem. Uh, is exacerbated by this is a silent disease. It does not uh, really have symptoms until it's too late in the game. And we don't want to wait too late. 
Um, and that's where it comes into screening. If you know uh, of someone, loved one, family member, friends, family uh, with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, overweight, unhealthy lifestyle, uh, make sure they get screened for fatty liver when they see their uh, physician during annual physical, physician or dietitian during annual physical. That's, I feel, the big teaching point. And even kids now can suffer from fatty liver, correct? Yes. Yeah. So I, I'm just saying sometimes I think, oh, it's like, oh, 30, 40, 50. And just remember people, especially depending on their nutrition, I think, just to remind people. So I, I really appreciate your time. And I appreciate that you guys collaborated again. The book is Regenerative Health. I think for me, what I what I also took away from besides tons of information spelled out, um, you know, was this, I, there's a, the notion of regenerative. Both of you are approaching this from a really proactive and hopeful point of view, which I feel like is the only way that keep, it keeps us motivated. I know everyone, sometimes people are afraid and they get going, but I think of this idea of like, no, you can really improve this, um, is really powerful. So thank you. And I know it's a lot of work and you already are doing a ton of other things. So thank you for doing this and putting it together for us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, we, um, we are honored to be with you today. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. All you have to do is go to gabriellereese.com or head to the episode show notes to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, podcasts, and so much more. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out and send them to at Gabby Reese on Instagram. And if you feel inspired, please subscribe. I'll see you next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.